0: Justice all. Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And we have a great show today. On the line is a demographer named Mark Montgomery from the Population Council. uh, And we talk about demography. We talk about global population trends uh, with a specific focus on his area of study, which is urban populations and the movement of women and girls. So we are now just about a dozen episodes deep into this podcast. I think things are going well. Uh, Slow down a little bit from the once-a-week pace, uh, but we're going to pick that up uh, after the summer holiday. Things um, get a little harder to schedule when people are constantly on vacation, uh, which is such the case uh, in August in the uh, international affairs world. As always, some of your thoughts. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email uh, and let me know what you think about this podcast. If you have ideas for other people I should interview, send them my way. For now, here is my conversation with Mark Montgomery, the economist and demographer. Okay, and Now, you are in New York. Is that where I'm reaching? I saw a 212 number. That's right. I'm at the Population Council's main office in in New York City. Okay. Uh, And so the reason uh, we are speaking right now is that a a reader of mine put – me in touch uh, with your somewhat recent report, Girls on the Move, Adolescent Girls and Migration in the Developing World. Uh, You know, I was thinking this on the surface seems like a almost a very narrow topic to explore. And I'm wondering what made you sort of pick this confluence between adolescent girls and migration to study? It is, um, I suppose you could say it's it's narrow. It brings
1: together a uh, a topic migration that has uh often been approached uh, by academic researchers uh much less often by uh, uh those interested in policies and programs um, it also uh it connects those issues to uh concerns about the lives and well-being of adolescent girls uh, and interestingly these um uh the theme of migration, that the role that movement plays in, in uh, girls' lives has not been uh, explored previously uh, to our knowledge. And so although it is a bit of a focused uh, emphasis, uh, we thought it was an area deserving of some consideration.
0: So I, I guess the idea is, you know, people, uh, particularly in the developing world, are migrating all the time, be that to uh, from the uh, sort of rural areas to the cities or between cities or from the uh, global south to the global north. And you're looking at how these moves affect, uh, you know, girls between the ages of, what, like uh, 11 and 19? Um, ideally, uh, we, we... – do want to uh,
1: emphasize the importance of looking at younger girls at the lower end of that range that you've mentioned. Um, Much of the the data that we rely on, and this is very much an evidence-based report, comes from somewhat older girls. Um, 15 to 19 is, is, uh, uh, that's where the bulk of the evidence is, um, although we wish there were more available for the younger girls. Um, I do want to say that if you look at the emphasis on migration now, whether in the United Nations system, uh, World Bank, and and so forth, almost all the attention that is being given to migration is uh, being given to international migration. Um, And there are very good reasons uh, for that. some adolescents participate in those international migration streams that take them from one country to another, but far, far more um, are involved in internal migration, that is, in migration within their own countries. Uh, and somehow that um, that has gotten lost sight of. I mean, there are probably more internal migration, uh, internal migrants in China alone than there are international migrants the world over. Uh, and so it's it's a kind of an, un, uh, an odd situation where, at least numerically, the far more important type of migration uh, taking place within countries has been almost ignored for the last uh, decade or so, in,
0: uh, with all the attention going to the international streams. And so, what um, I, I guess are you finding? What are you finding, sort of specific to domestic migration? Uh, if that's the term of art uh, that that's used, uh, I'm not sure, but or internal migration, as you said, uh, that's specific to to adolescent girls. I mean, why did you pick, of all the demographics, you could have chosen uh, to look at adolescent girls uh, in this uh, situation? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. The um,
1: I, girls at this age uh, make a, a number of choices uh, that affect their future lives, and sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Um, But one of the most fundamental choices that anyone of this age, girl or or boy, uh, can make is a choice about where to live. Uh, And for us, we thought that the movement of girls from rural areas to cities or from smaller cities to larger um, had – it was an issue that uh, needed some uh, attention, that it clearly – has implications for girls' well-being, for better or for worse, uh, uh, as circumstances uh, might dictate. Um, And we also found very little uh, attention having been given to this issue uh, previously. So we're thinking of Our our report ended, uh, uh, we we decided to focus on uh, urban environments as the destinations for adolescent girls and ask, you know, what risks do girls run when they they move to cities and towns? And uh, just as important, uh, what opportunities do they find there that they might not have found in their home communities, whether those are rural villages or uh, small towns or uh, smaller cities? Um, and of course, the the story is one uh, very much of risk and opportunity, and the report tries to balance those those two and not to ignore either one, uh, because there certainly are real risks that that uh, girls encounter uh, along the way, along their migration journeys and at destinations, uh, but they undertake those journeys in the hope of, of uh, uh, most of them, of finding uh, uh, lives better than those that they, they left behind.
0: Now, are these, and, uh, are, are, are the adolescent uh, girls that you're looking at, are, are they um, sort of migrating on their own? Is this sort of a group that decides to pick up and leave their village, or are they going as part of family units? There's,
1: you know, when you talk about um, adolescents making choices, I mean, that's a bit of a, difficult uh, concept. I mean, there are a lot of things that factor in uh, uh, to an event uh, like migration. A girl could move entirely on her own account, um, uh, sort of independently as it were. Um, She can move because in her view, uh, that would be the best thing for her family, enabling her, um, if all goes well, uh, to make a contribution to her family in in the future. Uh, perhaps support other siblings and, and so on. Um, in terms of the, the, the logistics of moves, um, it is unusual for girls to migrate uh, literally by themselves. They uh, It's much more common that they move in a group of friends, relations. Um, sometimes they move in uh, the company of uh, an intermediary who is a, a person who um, Connected to uh, employment possibility, let's say in domestic or factory work in the city to which they're they're heading, um, girls leaving uh, entirely on their own and moving on their own is is relatively unusual. We we believe.
0: Um, so you mentioned earlier there there are risks and, and opportunities associated with this change. What what are some of the risks that you've identified in your report?
1: Well, the risks have, have received uh, much more attention in, in uh, the policy circles and even in the literature, uh, the academic literature, than the opportunities. But they include, at the far extreme, um, uh, the risks of, of sex trafficking, which have gotten a great deal, uh, and justifiably so, uh, of uh, international attention. There are risks um, associated with uh, unsafe working conditions at destination. Um, which we have seen tragically uh, illustrated in Bangladesh in that uh, building collapse in Rana Plaza of a few months ago. Um, there are counterparts, in, in, of course, in, in many countries. Uh, so there are a, a range of risks that girls um, uh, run when they move from uh, uh, a home where they are – uh, surrounded by, uh, you know, uh, familiar individuals, familiar institutions, into a new environment in which they uh, may have a lot to learn about where is safe to go, where are the opportunities for work, for healthcare, or what have you. Um, so those risks are uh, real. Um, of course, girls move uh, in search of opportunities for better employment that may help them. Uh, avoid uh, other risks. Uh, one feature of, uh, of the Bangladesh experience in Rana Plaza, we believe that many of the girls who lost uh, their lives in that building collapse were migrants, uh, many of them from the rural areas of, of the country. Um, they were there. Uh, uh, Working in jobs that uh, are difficult, uh, obviously risky, as we as we saw, um, but which for them might have given the girls the ability to fend off pressures for early marriage. So moving to the city uh, presents girls with one set of risks; it may help defend them against other uh, social risks.
0: You know, there there. I was um, about two years ago. I visited a. Um a garment factory, a garment factory in Bangladesh, not unlike the Rana Plaza, it was sort of this great giant um, import-export zone where uh, thousands upon thousands of workers line up to, you know, work for very low wages, but but higher wages than they would otherwise receive if they were, you know, working in farms and in the fields. And um, I was there as part of a global, as sort of a, as part of a health um, uh, investigation. Uh, and one of the things we were looking at was how these factories. Uh, provided health services to their employees. And it seems that sort of from a public policy perspective, one of the advantages of maybe having uh, this sort of influx of people into cities is that it's easier to provide key services uh, to them when they are sort of, you know, all together in a city as opposed to in rural parts of the country. And I wonder if that is something that that you guys have sort of identified, have looked at that yeah, of- I think
1: that's, that's exactly right. I mean, that, our, our, our focus on cities is that that is, you know, those are destinations uh, where uh, all kinds of potentially beneficial resources are concentrated, whether it's uh, health care schooling, uh, more diverse labor markets um, than uh, might have been found out in the countryside. So that is in a way uh, the definition of an, uh, an urban environment, that it is diverse, it, offer, it offers a concentration of of resources um, and has at least the potential to put girls uh, into contact with beneficial services uh, that might not be seen you know, elsewhere. Uh, One of the clearest illustrations we found in the report um, has to do with schooling and uh, girls' ability to uh, further their schooling after migrating to a city. Uh, We know from decades of academic uh, research on migration that individuals who are somewhat better educated are more likely to migrate, and that's been known for many years, but what hasn't been studied as much is the impact of migration on schooling opportunities after the move. Um, And so we found that for migrant adolescent girls, uh, 15 to 19-year-olds, a substantial percentage of those girls move in, they say, uh, in search of better educational opportunities, uh, secondary schooling and, and beyond. And surprisingly high percentages of them uh, do in fact uh, are in fact able to enroll in school and to continue to build that uh, their educational um, assets
0: um so so turning to your uh, educational assets now you are a social scientist by training you're an economist by training is that right yes, that's right I'm an economist um so I how did a, you get that that social science bug
1: well it's um uh, you know, economics is uh, a great organizer of uh, of information about uh, social conditions. Um, it's a great logical structure to, uh, uh, in which to you know organize your your curiosities. Um, I, I, the branch of economics I work in, I study conditions in poor countries, uh, health, uh, demographic um, conditions, and and so on, and. Um, uh, I have always I found them and uh, and continue to find those those conditions very interesting uh intellectually and of course uh uh, uh very important uh in terms of uh social well-being.
0: So was there so uh, I guess where, where did you grow up What part you're you're American I assume? Yeah, I, I grew
1: up in Kansas uh, uh in Kansas City, Missouri. Um eventually migrated well with my family yeah. uh uh uh, not necessarily by my choice, uh, to New Jersey, and then uh, went ultimately uh, to undergraduate uh, at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and then for my graduate uh, training to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor.
0: So, was it at, at Chapel Hill when you realized that studying developing world developing world economies is sort of what what you wanted to do, or is it did that, yeah. did that come sooner? Did you did do you have sort of did you um, you know, were you exposed to any books, ideas, or anything in high school or, or earlier that, that made you want to pursue this as a as a career? I think it was mostly at, at
1: college. And, and as, you know, as often is the case, uh, a few sort of vivid, uh, influential professors make all the difference. Um, and I did have uh, one in particular, uh, Boone Turchi, who uh, at North Carolina, who was uh, very influential, turned me on to economics and to uh, economic development and economic demography, as we call it, or population economics.
0: Um, so I was looking at your, uh, so your you, your PhD came in the early 1980s, right? I was looking at your, your uh, degree. Right. So this, I mean, this it seems as if from from where I sit that there has been a more recent explosion in the study of developing world economies um, uh, that you're sort of on the earlier vanguard of. Uh, I'm wondering if you, I mean, how I guess how has the study of of developing uh, development economics sort of changed? I mean, it seems as of now there's there's a lot more. You know, you have like the greater attention on global health issues. There's the the randomized control trials that are being pioneered that I think were probably pioneered after you finish your PhD. I'm wondering right. sort of how the field has changed because, you know, you, you seem to uh, be part of sort of an, an earlier generation of people studying these issues. Right. It has uh, been transformed and you're quite right. Uh,
1: the the way that economists in, in particular studied economic development uh, and related issues in the early 1980s, um, is very different from the, the way we're doing it today uh, could, uh, economists used to do uh, this sort of research uh, sitting in their university offices and um, analyzing data uh, collected by other people for other reasons uh, but increasingly uh, this is uh, something that is uh, a development that has really accelerated and through the 1990s and uh, into the present. Economists are getting out of their offices, um, uh, going to the sites where their uh, research is, is being conducted, um, asking uh, new questions, gathering their own data. I mean, this was just not at all done uh, back when I left graduate school. I, uh, it's, a, it's a very different world and I think a much better approach than used to be.
0: And what were you, so what what was your uh, PhD uh, uh, dissertation focusing on? Um, I was at the University of Michigan in
1: the Population Studies Center, as well as the Economics Department, and I did uh, uh, a PhD on uh, health issues in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, at the time uh, was one of the
0: relatively few developing countries offering uh, really detailed uh, survey data mm-hmm. uh and as as obviously before that that innovation in which sort of the economists went into the field to do some of their own their own research um, i guess so so looking back so so you, you also have experience in demography as well I mean looking back in nineteen eighty two when you got your Ph.D., was there anyone thinking that sort of the, the population of the world would be 7 billion uh, by 2011? Were, were, were people oh, yes, okay. yes. No, that that kind of thinking has not been in, in, uh, in short supply,
1: even from the uh, – you may remember in the 1960s, it was the era of the population bomb and, yeah. and uh, fears of, of – uh, uh, world population being seven, eight, nine, or billion or beyond, uh, were being expressed. Uh, you know, way back then, um, it's been something of a surprise that we have gotten uh, the world's population has, has reached seven billion without some of the catastrophic um, developments that were predicted back in uh, in the 1960s and and earlier. And part of that, people believe, is that the population growth that's been taking place has uh, largely and increasingly uh, been concentrated in cities and towns um, which offer benefits if we as we talked about before um, and perhaps uh, offset some of the uh,
0: the costs of, of population growth well what would what were the some of the costs of population growth uh be absent that sort of urban migration what what were they what were they worried about the the population Bomb people? I think there was a lot of, of concern
1: and justifiable about the impact of uh, people on the natural environment. Um, now, you know, uh, those concerns are, once again, uh, uppermost in, in many people's minds. And we're seeing a reemergence of, of worry, um, uh, justifiable worry about the impact of uh, global Population growth, but even more important, global economic growth, and based on oil, based on carbon, uh, which is taking expression in global warming, with you know all kinds of uh, negative consequences uh, coming our way. So it's not that those fears were misplaced. Um, it may be that the consequences, the uh, catastrophes that people foresaw in the 1960s, did not materialize in a exactly the way they were thinking about uh, in that era. But there are certainly uh, population-related issues uh, that are environmental and
0: that will pose um, great threats in, in the coming years. Um, so I guess looking at the, the sort of global population um, sort of situation from from a from a global perspective where i guess where are we seeing the most growth around the world uh today where uh you know I, I recall when we had the world population hitting 7 billion uh i think it was october 2011 uh is when that happened um is that right just about there yeah it's okay. it's a it's a hard uh, uh it's hard to put your finger yeah. on
1: the, even the year much less the, the yeah. month
0: yeah yeah but i remember like the un was celebrating that or or commemorating the sort of the world's 7 billionth person around, around the, the autumn of uh, 2011. Um, that, you know, th- there are projections going forward of, of, you know, we can have a world population of, of you know, 9 billion by 2050. You know, there, are, there are all these projections going forward. Where I guess where in the world are we seeing the most, the most growth? And where, um, I guess, do these sort of future projections come from? Well, the uh, the region of the world that
1: is has got uh, most people worried in terms of its uh, pre- the present rate of population growth in the likely future is uh, sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, these are countries where, for the most part, uh, levels of childbearing continue to be high, uh, not as high as they used to be in most countries, but um, high enough to keep propelling population growth in those uh, often very fragile economies and, and societies. So there's a lot of concern now, um, a lot of in, international emphasis on um, improving conditions in Sub-Saharan
0: Africa. Uh, so and, of course, that, that's also
1: – Does yeah, that sorry. suggest
0: that, um, I guess, uh, fertility is declining in India and in, in China oh yes uh
1: fertility in china uh, was low even thirty years ago um, and has gotten lower still mm-hmm. uh fertility in india uh is is on the decline and seems likely to continue uh declining into the future. Uh, there are countries in sub saharan Africa where you see the same developments, uh, especially in urban areas uh so for example in ethiopia um, uh, levels of childbearing in the rural parts of that country, and it's still predominantly rural uh, are much, much higher than they are in Addis Ababa or the other uh, uh, large cities of
0: of the country.
1: There's is, a, a a night
0: and day difference almost. So is that because um, you know people in rural areas are generally poor and generally poorer people generally have less access to family planning and less sort of lower education levels, whereas people who are living in cities are generally a little better off and have a little more access to those kind of services? Oh, I think that is that is certainly part of the
1: story, the ability to uh, control reproduction with uh, modern contraception. That is that is certainly part of the story. Uh, possibly the, the larger piece of it is that in cities, uh, parents uh, come to realize how costly it is uh, uh, to bring up children and how if they're to be brought up uh, right with real prospects for their future that um, uh, there's a need to shift to uh, uh, having fewer children but educating each one more than would have been uh, sensible back in hmm. the rural areas. So even and you see that transition underway in, in uh, uh, rural villages as well. It just it takes a bit longer to, uh, to spread all the way through the system.
0: So it's it's really this process of urbanization that's that's driving these 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 changes. So, I think that's uh, that is a large part of the story. So I guess is there maybe like a direct correlation uh, between uh, rates of urbanization in a country and decline of fertility, like from a countrywide perspective?
1: Yeah, there is there is clearly a, a strong association uh, between the two. Both you know both. Uh, declining fertility, uh, rising levels of schooling per child, and urbanization, those three things uh, uh, tend to move. In a, uh, they're highly correlated, as, as we would say, with fertility decline being a indicator of development in the same way that rising education and rising urban percentages are indicators of, of development. Um, to know which causes which is, is very difficult, uh, but we Believe that they are, it's, it's a complex of factors that uh, are,
0: are uh, entangled there. So I love, uh, uh, you, you, you obviously know this, but there's uh, Google right now has this, um, or for, for the last couple of years, has had a very easy uh, access to World Bank data on fertility and all sorts of other global health data. So as you were speaking, I just wanted to look up the fertility rate of uh, Nigeria. And they gave me this great graph within sort of one click of going back from 1960 to uh, to 2010. Uh, and back in 1960, uh, uh, Nigeria had a fertility rate of 6.5 births per woman. And now today we're down to, to 5.49. And that rapid, it looked like there was a peak in around 1980 of 6.79. Uh, and now we're, we're sort of steadily uh, declining. And Nigeria is, is one of those God, the reason I chose, I, I thought to pick Nigeria is just one of those, it's, it's the most populous country in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's also one of those countries with these large mega cities as well. Um, and I'm wondering if sort of the experience of Nigeria, where I know you've, you've studied and you've spent a lot of time, um, sort of can help explain this, some of these global trends that you're talking about. Well, in, in a way, uh, of
1: course, the, the current levels of childbearing at, uh, you know, over five children per woman in the country as a whole, that's really high. That is still very high. And that's, um, it's that kind of statistic that, uh, given Nigeria's size, uh, which is not precisely known, but it is certainly uh, well over 100 million at, at, at this point, uh, that's the kind of thing that gives uh, people cause for concern. Uh, but Nigeria is also a, a, a great country with a wealth of uh, uh, human uh, resources, educated you know, uh, universities, uh, uh, important cities. Uh, it hasn't, it's one of those countries that hasn't managed to pull it all together in a, in a way that um, other countries have managed to do. Uh, so it's, it's often cited as a, a case of Great potential
0: and missed opportunities. I mean, it seems as if, like you know, if 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 sort of public policy can be um, harnessed around sort of Nigeria uh, and and the sort of the demographics of Nigeria and and fertility rates, that sort of as Nigeria goes, so might the entire you know sub subcontinent sub sub sub-Saharan Africa.
1: Yes, if you can, certainly if you can make a difference in that, uh, uh, environment, uh, anything that, uh, proves successful in Nigeria is likely to prove successful in other countries of, uh, that are, uh, in similar uh, situations. Um, people often look as an example of, uh, uh, as an, another, uh, example, uh, they look at, uh, Ghana, you know, much smaller, um, on a more stable, path of growth in economic terms, and, and uh, we think in terms of population as well. Um, so there are a number of countries around the region that uh, offer great test cases for uh, policies and, and programs.
0: Um, I wanted to maybe move, move along a little bit. Where, uh, I guess, what are, what are, what are you studying right now? What are you looking at? What are some of the trends that you are uh, sort of studying and observing? Um, what I'm
1: working on with a number of uh, uh, other people at the Population Council and universities and so on is to try to understand the uh, risks that are coming or already here um, having to do with uh, climate change, the risks that, uh, that climate change and climate events uh, present for uh, city dwellers in, in poor countries. That's the focus of my current research.
0: And so where are, what studies or what what cities are you looking at
1: well uh, we're looking at a variety of cities this is uh surprisingly uh, uh not many uh, demographers of whom I'm one uh, have really engaged with these issues of uh, what you could call climate change adaptation. It's still um, a relatively new area of emphasis for uh, social scientists, if not for you know the Uh, physical and natural scientists and so on. Um, But we're looking at two kinds of risks that are uh, already present um, and which we're likely to see more of in the future. Uh, The risks of flooding, uh, which afflict uh, a number of cities across uh, poor countries. And also uh, at the other extreme, uh, so flooding is too much water, um, but there are also risks in terms of water scarcity. There's something like in poor countries, uh, 900 million city and town dwellers who live in arid regions, where uh, either seasonally and/or in some cases throughout the year, there's really not enough water for basic uh, human needs. Um, often, those cities in arid regions are growing in ways that will put even more people in
0: the future uh, at those sort of water. Uh, uh, water scarcity risks. What are some of the cities that, that, that uh, might be included in this list?
1: Well, um, you would look, for example, at um, cities in Pakistan, uh, in India. Uh, India has uh, the full menu of, uh, of climate-related risks from flooding uh, to uh, water scarcity. Uh so there are a, a, a map of the world's uh, cities in dry land show an, a number of uh, uh, cities in that kind of situation.
0: And I guess what I mean, I, it, it might be too early to because uh, you haven't sort of published uh, published anything on this, yet, or maybe, maybe you have, but I haven't seen it. Um, but what I guess what are some of your early conclusions? Like what 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 happens to, uh, what, for, for example, when, when cities are flooded? How does that affect sort of the, the demography of, of the of the region how does that affect people's sort of migration and fertility choices well you know we don't know for sure that's um, but we do know that flooding
1: happens uh, repeatedly it's often uh, very predictable and just as predictably uh, local governments uh, don't take uh actions to protect their uh, the residents the poor residents of, of their cities uh, to the extent that they should be uh, taking action so for example in um, uh, in Accra in Ghana uh, every year about this time june july uh, there are floods that devastate some of the slum communities of that city and the slum dwellers know uh, why the damage is as bad as it is it's because the uh, drainage system, the sewers are um, inadequate, overloaded, filled with waste, not cleaned out, that sort of thing. But the cycle repeats year after year after year, uh, exposing children and and adults as well to real health risks. Now, we don't know over the long term whether that affects uh, uh, migration decisions or other sorts of behavior. Um, but we do know that this is a uh, uh, flooding. Is a type of extreme uh, event, a localized disaster that has uh, important implications for health, and that seems to have been uh, neglected.
0: I guess if, if the area is flooding all the time, why why do people keep coming back?
1: Well, you know, it's uh, it, for uh, Accra in particular. Um, the advantages that cities offer, the opportunities that they offer. Uh, the chance of uh, finding some niche in a diverse economy that will improve your life, that tends to trump uh, the risks that people run. And I mean, after all, that was the uh, the case in Europe and the United States for, uh, you know, for, for many, many uh, decades. Um, So it's not uh, surprising that people are having to balance uh, the risks and the opportunities.
0: And, uh, you know, it seems as if, and, and as if, um, New city dwellers, uh, that there's sort of an inequity in sort of the geography of a city, whereby new city dwellers, poor city dwellers live in more marginal lands that are, say, more prone to flooding than maybe more established or more wealthier families live. Um, Is there, I guess, have there been examples, successful examples of cities transforming these marginal lands, these slums into something a little better? are there any sort of good good guideposts that a city like Accra can, can look to uh, for other cities in the region or around the world that have done this well?
1: Well, there are, um, yes, there are a number of examples around the world. A lot of them come from, interestingly, from Latin America, which is, uh, you know, now uh, in many countries are, are in that middle-income range. They are not... Um, uh, involved in the international conversations on on poverty uh, to the extent that they should be. But one of the things that we've seen uh, in uh, Brazil and uh, other Latin American countries is real attention to uh, 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 the participation of the urban poor in uh, their governance, in their government, in the sort of systems that, that – uh, 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 determine much about about their lives. So, in a, a number of cases uh, in Latin America and uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, these sort of inclusive systems of government have helped uh, bring the voices of the urban poor uh, 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 made them uh, evident uh, to policymakers, and change does happen. Uh, uh, these flooding risks or other uh, risks that affect basic human needs. Um, do ultimately get addressed in, in many cases. But um, that's there's nothing automatic about that process. It's a complicated and often uh, uh, slowly developing kind of process whereby the poor get their needs attended
0: to. Uh, great. Well, Mark, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Thank you, Mark. Well, that was great. I've always been kind of fascinated by demography, so that was a uh, really wonderful conversation to have. Hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we will see you soon. Bye.